Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Omaha Bar Association podcast. I am your host, Dave Summers, Executive Director of the Omaha Bar Association. With me today are four attorneys here in practice in Omaha. Joe Bradley, Bradley Law Firm. Hello, Joe. Well, hi, Dave. All right. Jordan Holst is here from Alec Jones Law Firm. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Dave. Good to be here. Patrick McNamara, McNamara Law Firm. Hello. Hello, thank you to Dave and the OBA for having me. And last but not least, our host, Jeremy Elliott from Hotman O'Brien. Hello, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, we have a few different things to talk about today. We are going to dive into hurricane season. We have Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Jose, Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Harvey, all in the news. And we're going to get into that. We'll also talk iPhone 10 or iPhone X, if you're like me and don't understand Roman numerals. We like to get into fine print around here. We're, in, we're people who enjoy reading the backs of tickets, the iTunes fine prints that you have to get into to actually download music, and we'll talk about that. And finally, everybody's favorite, it's pumpkin spice latte season. So we're going to talk about that, a little truth in advertising. And with that, let's begin with that first topic. The hurricanes Harvey and Irma, Harvey hitting the Houston area, Irma hitting the Caribbean, Florida Keys, Florida, and beyond, is in the news. And I was looking at these reports from there and from uh, some areas that have been hit, hit before then, and they were discussing the flood insurance situation, FEMA, being the uh, insurer, federal insurer of flood insurance um, for these affected areas. And I, I have a personal story, I guess, to, to share here. My, my father owns a home in the Florida Keys, Summerlin Key, that got hit very hard from the hurricane. And his house is in great condition because it's, uh, it has the ability, it's been built to sustain category four hurricane winds and rain. Uh, however, the $60,000 retirement homes for the people inland are completely destroyed. And the flood insurance has a $100,000 deductible, as I understand it. And there are some buildings out there, some homes that have been rebuilt upwards of 10 times over the past 20 years under the current flood insurance program. And I got to think that there's something going on here that doesn't make sense in a financial capacity, but also uh, should there be some eminent domain uh, issues? Should possibly the government come in and uh, take out these homes that are getting flooded out, getting destroyed, that they're rebuilding in areas where the hurricanes are hitting? Um, anybody? Anybody know any have a personal story about the hurricanes or, or know anything about this? I have a friend, Calvin, who lives down in um, Fort Myers, and he posted on Facebook that they were released from the lockdown um, and at Gold Coast Village, which was his um, 
I don't know if it's a apartment team or if it's the nursing home that he's working at, but he says our team aided and sheltered around 1,200 people, including residents, residents, loved ones, associates, associates, families, and pets. So he wanted to give a special shout out to the nurses and CNAs that sacrificed their times. He said that his department was fine, but they kind of had to pull together and invite, you know, everyone's families in to shelter him from Irma. So people coming together. That's I mean, that's a, a wonderful story from it, even with all the damage and destruction. I, I mean, for me, it's always tough because like one of my, you know, like I was, my emotions on these always kind of come in waves. Because first I'm like, you know, let's let's help all these people, and then I'm like. And then, like, part of me is like, well, this place is too dangerous to live. Like, where are these people living here? And then, like, you, but you break it down. Like, you know, we're here in Omaha, a town that was, like, half destroyed by tornadoes, like, half a generation ago. Like, in California, at any moment, like, someone's going to snap their fingers and it'll fall into the ocean. Like, it's, you know, it's, in any given place, there's very kind of dangerous things that can happen. And Except North Dakota, I have to say. <laughs> as, as North Dakota. You can get through 30 degree below zero weather. It's there's nothing going on there. There's no earthquakes. There's no no landslides, no prairie fires, or anything like that. And there are no people. So but it, the it, is, it you is have wide to, open for people to populate. The catch is you have to be near South Dakota, though, and that's a deal breaker. <laughs> well, and it may be true that you're safe from natural disasters, but not man-made disasters such as the wood chipper. So that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. A great <laughs> <laughs> And. I, I am conflicted on this too, Joe. I really am. Uh, Florida is beautiful. There's a lot to offer down there. Certainly you can't, you can't completely take away people's ability to live in the state of Florida. There's scientific reports that over the next hundred years, the water level will rise somewhere in the realm of maybe seven feet, six to five to seven feet. Do we sit here and we keep on right, you know, raising the the barriers around this, raising the um, the bridges? You know, there's there's some man-made islands um, down in Miami that, if you raise the water level three feet, the bridges between them are underwater. So, are we tempting fate? You know, again, this is a big government, little government, maybe um, discussion. Does the government have a role to get involved here? Say. You know, eminent domain this area. Uh, we are not going to pay for rebuilding your house for the fifth time. We are going to pay you to give us your house, and we'll and we'll tear it down. And I actually saw in the news in Tennessee they were doing this in Nashville. Um, they've been eminent domain taking of houses. Um, for the most part, they've been trying to just buy them and not do an eminent domain um, action. But they've. They've said it's in a floodplain. FEMA's called this a floodplain that's going to uh, flood every 10 years. Uh, you, you need to either give us your house or you're going to have to rebuild it on your own time. We aren't going to actually cover it on flood insurance. No, so there's, there's precautions that can be taken. You know, obviously, sometimes they're going, to be, they're going to be prohibitively costly. But, you know, the Supreme Court's held that you can put conditions on these federal funds to say, okay, we'll... You know, we're, we'll front you the money to rebuild, but you know you have to build it up on concrete stilts or something like that. Uh, there's there's ways to to prevent these issues from happening in the future. You know, Joe, you mentioned earlier that you don't want to say, all right, well, no one should build in these dangerous areas, but people have been living in them for for a long time. Especially before I moved to Omaha, I'm from New York, and 
I moved out of New York about two months after Hurricane Sandy and a lot of my friends' houses were completely destroyed. Um, and a lot of them, when they chose to rebuild, they rebuilt their houses six feet higher than, than they built them in the first place just because there was m more, it's, it was more likely that their house is gonna survive the next storm that comes through in that case. Now again, not everyone has the ability to build that and, and a lot of these flood insurance payments, um, whether they're private flood insurance payments or they're cover, coming from government funds, they're not gonna be sometimes enough to build to that, to that degree to make a house hurricane proof. But um, it's possible that there might, be, there might be a need to say, all right, if we're gonna give uh, government funds or we're gonna, we're gonna even sell you a flood policy that you have to take precautions in advance so that you don't run into these, these problems in the future. And I think that five minutes in is the longest it's ever taken for Patrick to publicly declare that he's from New York. <laughs> that will be broadcast to the world. So congratulations. Thank you. On, I, on tried to, now, I Patrick, tried to hold back. Patrick, to clarify, are you a Mets fan? So occasionally. Okay, I'm occasionally it. a Mets Good. fan. <laughs> it waxes and wanes. They're, they're, they're flooded out this year, right? They're, are they rebuilding? Or no, they, well, they're, they're definitely rebuilding. Uh, I mean, I <laughs> hope they're... It's a disaster. I it's hope been, they're rebuilding. It's been announced a disaster uh, yeah. um, this year. You know, one, one thing on that um, point, and I heard this on uh, local radio, a guy called in from Mexico, and he said, I'm down here, they require you to build your house with, with cement block. You can't build with wood, especially if you're in an area that's prone to natural disasters, be it earthquake, um, be it hurricanes. And there's some point to that. It may be aesthetically unpleasing, it may be more expensive, but it's going to stand the test tent there. Um, I know we don't like to have infringement on our rights to build with straw and everything else from the Three Little Pigs. But <laughs> I'm like, is this a Three Little Pigs material? <laughs> Always. Straw sticks and... but. That's something thrown out there that there should be some sort of guidelines on what you build with if they're going to insure it. Along those lines, Dave, so I've been on vacation before in other cities across the country and have noticed, you know, you're driving through an area, every building has brick on it, everything looks nice. Driving through the city of Omaha sometimes, we have a hodgepodge of buildings and codes, it seems like where you've got a metal shack next to a nice building. Anyone else notice that from other cities? Yes, our, our zoning, the nice way to put it in Omaha, it's not quite uniform. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we don't want to infringe on anybody's rights to build whatever they want to. That's right. I'm not that... I've ever been to Santa Fe, New Mexico, but I have... <laughs> <laughs> Best to start to a sentence ever, please. <laughs> So I dug out my uh, land use and zoning notes before today's podcast. I couldn't believe that my genome went back that far, but it did. And I was reading through them, and they were somewhat coherent. Uh, and I remember my professor, actually, I, I can actually remember the guy talking about it, but Santa Fe, New Mexico has extremely stringent zoning codes on aesthetics. Uh, and it's in order to, to preserve the value of the surrounding area and... I guess everyone's kind of in it together in order to make the the city more pleasing and increase their property values. And I guess the courts have held that simply making zoning regulations on on aesthetics are are constitutional because it improves the value of 
the property and which whatsoever. Is, which is interesting. As a former New Mexican, the costs of living in Santa Fe are prohibitive to many of the people that work the shops in the town square and the plaza um, because of those restrictions. Um, it's an incredibly beautiful place and it does have the history, um, oldest oldest church in um, in North America, but the, um, the ability of somebody to live in Santa Fe is really restricted by those covenants, so that's interesting. Um, anything else on this topic? You know, I, I could bust down, and this could just be a good blurb for us to have. You know, I looked up kind of some of the details on eminent domain. Just, just so we have this, just in case we want to put it in. So eminent domain comes from the takings clause in the Fifth Amendment. Uh, it's any taking by government must be for a public use to be valid, and any government that does take property, even for public use, must fully compensate the owner of the property for the taking. Now, of course, kind of the two issues that come up with that are what is a public use and what is considered fair compensation. I'm guessing usually the government and the person who sells the land does not agree on that point. And the the public use of tearing it down and making it natural land, you know, back to its natural state, probably would be a, a question because usually it's to build, um, you know, new mixed development and everything like that, bring more tax revenue. Well, because that was a lot of the problem in Houston, right? Like they had these reservoirs that were supposed to be this marshland and supposed to have all the space around them, and they thought, well, you know what? Instead of that, let's put a bunch of homes right by them and. So yeah, I mean that's the that's the eminent domain talk they're doing now. It's just to raise these houses and put it back to, to marshland and is that a public use? I don't know. And we have room in Omaha for the people that are displaced, yes. And actually, Dave, I saw reported in the local Omaha news just this afternoon, Omaha has accepted its first dogs from Houston at the Nebraska Humane Society. We are heroes in this we town. <laughs> Did you know that they were discounting the dogs that they had in the shelter to make room? The dogs and cats, they cut the adoption rate so that they could clear as much room in the shelter as they could, so that they could bring in as many animals as they could. So. I, I have an, a new puppy, and maybe I should get another. That's what, what I'm hearing. I think everyone should have like five puppies. Dave, do not tell your wife about this. <laughs> <laughs> this will be cut out of the podcast. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to something that, like we've talked about in the past, is a great uh, lead-in. Everybody wants to talk about the new iPhone uh, 10. I don't think anybody wants to talk about the iPhone 8 as much as they want to talk about the iPhone 10. I don't know where 9 went. It seems to be a mystery. Um, Do you want a really bad joke? Well, please. Yes, please. There's no 9 because 7, 8, 9. Oh, boo. <laughs> and we've gone back to grade school. <laughs> all right, that'll be the end of all OBA podcasts. This has been great. Signing off forever. <laughs> so, so can you have that be the lead in? <laughs> now, I think everybody here has an iPhone. If I, if I do, then yes. This is true. Patrick is holding up his massive iPad. Your iBoombox over like there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it does have good sound. But but we, we are the millennials that all have iPhones. And come there's this, the new one out. I'll lay it out here real quickly. We have the 10 that's retailing for $1,000.999. And it um, sort of looks like the Samsung with the, the wall-to-wall screen. Uh, no home button. And it has increased 
uh, facial recognition capabilities. Which, that, that's what scared me, because your face is now your password. Very scary to any of us that saw the Nick Cage thriller face off. <laughs> Again, a great reference to a wonderful movie. Uh, now, I'd like to jump in really quick please, as far please. as your, your discussion of wonderful movie. I recently <laughs> caught it on a Saturday afternoon. I don't remember what channel, maybe HBO, maybe Stars. I'm not quite sure. It does not hold up as well as you might have thought it would have. But the ski boots that have the magnetic attraction to the um, the jail floor right that that technology has been used we're still for, for decades no we're still working on that. i think we're still working on oh, that okay. i think that was in a more recent x-men potentially again and i'm sorry to bring up the controversial topic of face-off guys but that's the hot take you get with joe bradley <laughs> <laughs> um, so as a criminal defense attorney joe this is what i uh, was going to take from the facial recognition so joe as a criminal defense attorney sure yeah. Do you see a problem with the facial recognition being your unlock to phones? Um, I guess we had this issue come up with the Garcia trial, right? right. They were trying to unlock his, his iPhone and they couldn't. Um, Can they now, force a person to use their own face? Yeah. Or their own thumb, yeah. if we're not talking about the new face. That's not the, the rest of us in the second. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We're not talking about the eight. The, the nine definitely has it all, though, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's we are in a, a new frontier of, do, do they have to use the face? Do they have to, like, move their hands from their face to let them unlock the phone? If, if I had to guess, I suspect the case that would be similar to, you know, in the Garcia trial where they, they you can't make someone give you their coat. It's, you know, they, it became a very passive-aggressive fight with Apple and trying to get them to unlock stuff with that. And I... I mean, but that'd be tough because it's because again, the officer literally could just hold it up to the person and get it unlocked. However, according to Apple, you have to be actually paying attention to your phone screen. So I guess conceivably you could, you know, tilt your head all the way around to avoid the or keep your eyes closed to avoid the facial recognition technology working. Yeah, I actually heard a lot of people complaining that they don't want to have to actually look at their phone to be able to unlock it. But I mean, you have to look at your phone to use. Use your phone, right? Yeah, why is that an extra step that's so difficult like, to do when you're already gonna... look? Do you, Patrick? <laughs> do you? <laughs> so, so uh, stepping, stepping back to a larger perspective right now, we all have iPhones here. Yeah. Um, we all are attorneys, me less so than the rest of you, but <laughs> if, we're, if we're on our iPhones a lot, are we are we using them for law practice? I I use mine for my planning purposes for Illinois Bar Association. I I don't have to worry about it being secure because I'm not doing client communications or anything like that. But I know that a lot of the software out there allows for um, access via your phone and um, certainly um, responding to email when you're outside the office. Um, do y'all? What do you guys use your iPhones for? Well, no, I mean, my, I use it extensively. I mean, I'm a solo practitioner. I have no landline. I have Google Voice that goes straight to my phone. That's how clients get a hold of me. So, no, it's without the smartphone, it would be quite difficult. Is the new features, do those make you excited, more excited about using your phone for a blog practice? You know, I, the, the problem with the phone was never unlocking it using my face. I mean, I feel like they're solving <laughs> problems that weren't necessarily there. <laughs> it's like, gotta push a button? I just want to put my face in front of it. That was never the issue. But I mean, you know, I'm, I'm like anybody else. I like shiny new toys and I'm, I'm, 
I know I'm sitting here today, like, I'll never pay $1,000. And in two months, I'll be like, here's $1,000. Like, it's, it's going to happen. Jordan? I mean, I use my phone definitely to send emails. And I know that um, in the older generation, when they leave the office, they like to leave the office. And they actually, one of the attorneys in our office refused to get a cell phone because he didn't want anyone to be able to contact him when he was not in the office. Um, however, I think that our generation is a lot more t- tuned into our technological devices, and so it's more stressful for me not to have that there. I like to see when clients email me because it's something that I need to address then, I want to address it then, rather than getting into the office on Monday and seeing, oh no, I got this email on Friday at you know 5.30, and now I'm just finally dealing with it, and the client's been worried all weekend about it. So I don't know what practical difference um, the iPhone 10 is going to be versus my iPhone 6s Plus. I mean, really cool that they're getting rid of the bezels. I'm obviously going to buy one, but I don't know practically how much different it's going to be for me. Do you uh, use any of the law practice management software on your phone? Or I don't even know. Alec Jones has, we have remote desktop and that's about as far as we've gotten. So I can access our remote server on my laptop, but um, in terms of accessing a lot of client files. I can't really do a ton of that for my phone, so sure. I do as much as I can. Give out my number sparingly to clients, though, because I don't want a ton of client calls. Don't worry. On my we we write it down anywhere we can, Jordan, so <laughs> don't worry. And on that point of responding on a Friday afternoon, uh, I've heard this recently from, you said the older generation? The older generation, as we'll call them, um, of attorneys, that they say, I may go into office at 10, 10 a.m. and they're on their computer buying something, but they're also going to be on the email at 10 p.m. giving me a document that I really needed. And I'm really glad that they give it to me then instead of waiting until the you know, Monday after. And so uh, you kind of hit on something else, which is the millennial version of working all the time, more flexible hours, and the phone really helping that uh, facilitate that. Patrick, you are an early adopter to everything Apple, <laughs> having at least two Apple products in front of you right now. Um, if not a watch on. For the record, Jordan and Patrick both have phones, watches, and then another device. Um, and my Apple. laptop, actually, also. Patrick wins with four. So I just sold my iPad last week and I'm really <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember Patrick, how do you use the iPhone? in your law practice? I mean, I'm kind of all in. Uh, so we use a, a practice management software called MyCase. Um, the app on the phone is not as full featured as I'd like it to be, but I can still track my time with it. I can view pretty much every document we have uh, in our database. Um, and the version on the iPad, I can annotate, I can take notes, I can mark up documents, send them back to my staff immediately. Mm-hmm. I can use it as a scanner, I can, I can add documents in, I can move. Uh, everything around really quickly. Um, do you use the phone portion occasionally? The phone portion of your phone? Yeah. <laughs> do you use the email feature in my case to to communicate with clients, or do you just use the mail feature on your phone? We have client. It varies. Um, if we're talking about whether email is a secure means of communication, that's, that's what I was trying to going. get into. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it not? Secure compared to other means of communication. I mean, is is that really an issue? Is is sending documents through Gmail uh, a major issue that anyone's running into? That 
any bar advisory opinions have said we can't use email to communicate with our clients? Well, that's one of the frustrating things I have. I do a lot of work with uh, Nebraska Families Collaborative through Juvenile Court, and they always send like these encrypted emails that are like 10 code words. Yes. Yes. And it's like, you know, I have to do two code words and like give collateral and like call my grandma and like... Buy a surety bond. <laughs> like, buy a surety bond and like do my handprint. And then I get the email and eventually I get it and it's just a normal flipping email. And then like if I send them a question about it, they'll go, oh, and then they'll just like send it to me not encoded. I'm like, look, it's either important to encode it or it's not. And if it's not, please stop doing this. This is the worst. Yeah, I t as far as the practice management software we use, allocate some clients do value the secure communication uh, so those clients will respect what they want to do and, and and communicate solely through the practice management software but most people it's you know it's a mix of back and forth um, and I think as far as so what are we required ethically to keep reasonably apprised of relevant technology um, that is the standard is that I mean who's living up what is what is the standard who's living up to it uh, this guy. And the fact, well, the fact that <laughs> there's a lot of attorneys who won't even engage in using email. Are we, uh, Ooh, I, I sense a hot take coming. What, what level do we have to act at if certain attorneys are not even going to be held to the standard enough to simply respond to email? And please do name names. <laughs> I, I submit that carrier pigeons are still the superior communication. Sure. Very secure. I'm a public specimen. I can't, I can't shoot down a, a carrier pigeon. Uh, Jeremy, uh, you have a phone. Do they allow you to use your phone here at the office for client communication and yes. accessing files? Yes, Dave. I primarily just use the phone for good old-fashioned email. I uh, have all these apps. Honestly, I can't remember the password for <laughs> half of my app, so I, I try and log into them. The thumbprint doesn't work. So I'm actually looking forward to this facial thing, so I don't have to remember these passwords. It's <laughs> a good we, point. Can we talk about passwords for a minute? Oh, please. I just oh, downloaded I got so frustrated today. I took a step and downloaded a password manager for my phone. Oh, smart. I'm going to start to try and put all these. Well, because you have to do like, it's always like, Capital letter, lowercase letter, symbol, symbol, number, number, but not for everyone. Yeah, some, some you can't use. Give us your firstborn child. For yeah, for <laughs> firstborn child, and then a blood oath. Okay, but I, I, this is a good point, and I've thrown this out there. I think for the last four years, I heard this in passing that you should have the you should pay the five dollars a month, five fifteen dollars a month for the the password master program that is the blockchain, or maybe I'm referencing Bitcoin from our last meeting, which I probably am not understanding, but you have the one master passcode that gets you in all your other passcodes, and I think it's worth it. I think it's a reasonable expense um, to protect client information. Don't mean to go off topic, Dave, but in a follow-up to our last podcast, a new Nebraska ethics opinion just came out. Ooh. Attorneys can now accept Bitcoin. No joke. What? It's, it's official. It's official. There's all these things, but it still has to be reasonable. So you can't advertise your hourly rate as one Bitcoin an hour because some days that might be reasonable. Other days it might not be. Okay. And right now it's $4,500 an hour for one Bitcoin. Probably, yeah, probably not. I think I'm with it, Dave. Joe Bradley, you are. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to add an aside that I would love to revisit Game of Thrones in some fashion. 
had another podcast. Absolutely. Well, it's not be long between our Game of Thrones conversation. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's not going to be long between the seasons, and I was like, well, that is most certainly a false statement. Well, look, if we're we're measuring their winters in ten years, we are less than one winter away from the next Game of Thrones season. (laughs) It's got to be in there because I know our listeners are waiting for us to talk about Game of Thrones. As as we did so well in our last podcast, we we did extensive GOT talk. Yes, we did. The fans crave it. We gave it to them. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to topic three, the fine print. Um, we we mentioned this in our last podcast that the iTunes user agreement is something like eighteen pages. You have to agree to it before you can even download any music and listen to it. So I got I got to ask. Four, you know, four or five attorneys here at the table, if you count me, fifth attorney. Uh, you guys read these user agreements? Do you uh, find yourself slowing up the line at the gym when you're signing that membership agreement because you're going through it and you're making marks and you're trying to negotiate with them with the changing that? What, what do you guys? What do you guys do with these user agreements? You just click very quickly through them. Yeah, I would say that I'm notoriously um, stereotypical as an attorney and that I don't read them. <coughs> Well, no, it's, I, and I wish I could say I do, but like basically, I, I think I read the very first iTunes agreement. And then I saw that, you know, I had wasted seven, eight years of my life reading that one agreement. And that I just I couldn't do it anymore. And so now it's just, I don't know, it's like a leap of faith type situation. Well, and one caveat is I did read the iTunes agreement after I saw the South Park episode with sure. regard to the iTunes agreement. That's so. Right. Uh, please do tell. Oh, oh no, thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. That South Park episode combined the iTunes agreement with the movie Human Centipede oh, to yes. horrific results. I guess I'm, I've been a guy who's read the back of my baseball um, ticket when I've gone to Warner Park for a game or to College World Series. I, I read that. It's good because it's not 18 pages. It's four paragraphs. Uh, but I... I generally read those things and by the end of it I'm just steamed and I realize that I've given up all my rights, supposedly, by what it says there. And um, and you haven't even seen the baseball game. And the baseball game's not even good, so why did I even show up? But I got, I got to talk to you guys about this um, because are we just giving away our rights when we buy these tickets? and? Um, you know, they have these arbitration clauses in there that don't allow us to form a class action lawsuit to actually hold them accountable. We have to go in arbitration for a $30 ticket refund as opposed to having some fancy lawyer, uh, you know, file a class action and, and get millions on behalf of uh, a class of thousands. thousands. Well, from a practical perspective, are, are we just going to, you know, if you're someone who's not going to agree to these terms, you're just going to opt out of everything? You're not going to have iTunes? I mean, come on. Well, well. Ted Kaczynski style, I'm opting out. <laughs> well, Dave, in yeah. preparation for today, I actually pulled the terms and conditions from uh, Cox Communications oh, that if you want Lord. internet, at least where I live in my neighborhood, I have one option, and it's Cox Communications for internet. So I pulled the terms and conditions online and printed them out. It's uh, 25 pages right here. Which we will read right now. Uh, In its entirety. (laughs) I'll I'll go ahead and just start it. I'm going to start with the paragraph. 
17 <laughs> terms uh, with a parenthesis of in quotations, so the abbreviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the highlights are the first thing it talks about in an intro paragraph is how you're bound by arbitration. Um, there is a way to actually opt out of arbitration, but you have a very short amount of time and you have to look at section four and basically <laughs> notify them in writing you want to opt out and if you don't, you're stuck to it. And then the other interesting thing about this, they can basically update these at any time and after so many days of being online that you're bound by them. What requirements do they have to notify people of updating their terms and conditions? It, it does say in there, there's some language where it, they all they have to do is basically say, in, in your monthly statement, we're updating the terms and conditions online. Go read them. That's all I have to tell you. The short version. So I didn't like little... a bunch of cocks, guys. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah. We may have to change our rating on this podcast. <laughs> oh. Uh, so I did a little reading in on the history of the arbitration clauses in these fine print agreements. And as I understand it, um, there was an argument made by then John Roberts, the lawyer, not the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, that these arbitration agreements are valid and, and that um, they cannot be um, overturned by the states. That he lost that Supreme Court. Um, this was back in early 2000s. So I think this is an 02. Yeah. Before he went on. And then in 2010, the AT&T uh, case before the court basically reversed that and held that these arbitration positions, um, federal law is is um, superior to state law, and they cannot state states state courts cannot come in and um, say that arbitration is not. Uh, valid. So the, the feds have said that they can enforce these arbitration agreements and basically cut the legs out from under the class action lawyers that are taking these at the state level. It just gets me frustrated because the argument for upholding these arbitration clauses from the legal scholars that I see are like, you know, we got to let people have the freedom. we got to give people the freedom to make the... And, and, and as we just talked about, we automatically click on this. It's the opposite of freedom. It's like you said, that if you want your Cox Internet, you have to do this. Mm-hmm. This isn't like we're giving you the freedom to arbitrate if you want to. I'm sure you really want to arbitrate. I know. It feels very unconscionable. Mm-hmm. They're basically adhesion contracts, which right. mean one side has all the bargaining power. And consumers, I actually try to redline this and send it to them and present my own terms and conditions, and they told me no. Yeah. Well, my favorite, my favorite one of these no cases, deals. and I, I, I forget which cases was, but there was a guy a number of years ago, and someone had sent him, you know, just a mailer with some legalese, and do you, you know what I'm talking about here? Mm-hmm. So he, he, he was a, he was really good at, at doing uh, Photoshop, so he photoshopped it to change, the the words in the fine print to be for him, and so he kind of turned it back on them and sent it back. They it looked the same, so they filed it. They they let him open whatever account this was. And he was able to hold them to the terms of that fine print that he photoshopped and changed on them. That is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. Now, the silly side, I dude, I looked up some silly examples of fine print. I might go through some of them right now. Sure, Joe. So there was a on, a, on a buy one, get one free at Chipotle. The fine print, offer valid only at participating locations, which in this case means all locations, not to be combined with other offers or somehow cleverly duplicated, 
Limit one card per visit. Please present this card to the cashier, but don't be surprised when they keep it. Cash value one one hundredth of a cent, which is pretty much nothing. This is fine print. Why are you still reading this? Really, this is getting silly. Go eat. <laughs> Western Sky Financial offers people easy loans of $5,000. The fine print there says the APR for a typical loan is of $5,000 is 116.73% with 84 monthly payments of $486.58. For those of you not great at math, that comes to a little over $40,000 <laughs> on that $5,000 loan. So make sure you read all the Western Sky provisions. I found a lease agreement. It says, <laughs> under the provision, death of sole resident. If you are a sole resident upon your death, you may terminate the lease contract without penalty with at least 30 days written notice. <laughs> so get on that dead guy. Uh, and, then, uh, and then one of my favorites, and this is kind of a notorious one, and we, we may want to be careful of this because I know they're a notorious litigious entity, but Scientology. When people sign up for the Sea Org, Sea Organization, they always have to sign a contract, and that contract is for one billion years. That's they correct. have to sign it for one billion years. Now I don't know if if you're the second billion years, you're good. That that is I worry very about, interesting, and I know it's because they live multiple lives, right? Well, I worry about some rule against perpetuities issues around. Well, no, they, they get they get planets. Don't, isn't there a planet thing? Oh, Ron Hubbard, that's all I know. I'm going to stop there. I've read books on it. No, it's, it's, Ron, Hub it's Ron Hubbard. L no, L Ron, Ron, Ron Howard. L. Ron Howard. It's <laughs> Ron Howard. This just in, folks. Is he going to come Ron marry under Arrested Development? That's right. <laughs> the Ron Howard. It turns out Patrick was wrong. <laughs> we know what we're talking about here. Um, and the one, the one that I found was... What are we talking about right now? So, so Dave, as, as curling as a sport, if, mm. you, can, if you can just tell me, Mm -hmm. Better or worse as an exercise than bowling for you? As a North Dakotan, I, ha I would have to say curling is a better sport um, because of the sweeping. And so if you're the bowler, um, you're probably not getting, you're getting some quad leg um, workout, but, but really the sweepers, those are, those are the workers. Um, the collar says not, does nothing, so they don't really get much of a workout, but there's there's certain players of the team that are really going to work out. I have to, I have to throw one stone here. That is, ah. you have now doubled the amount of North Dakota references than Patrick has mentioned New York. So, <laughs> point Patrick. Moving on to the finale. Pumpkin spice season is here. Now, for those of you who want the history lesson or are still listening to this podcast, in 2002, Starbucks invented lattes. And since then... This country has become insane over anything related to pumpkin spice, pumpkin flavor. Around early September, I, you can't get in August. August is too early. September one, everything's pumpkin. I saw two Snapchat stories within an hour of each other of people at Trader Joe's freaking out over pumpkin spice flavoring that they got there. They weren't with each other. It was just random coincidence. Uh, three more people on Facebook the same day talking about pumpkin spice. It is insane. Now, what are the thoughts at this table on pumpkin spice? I gotta hear this. Well, I would just like to note that all five of us are wearing yoga pants and Ugg boots in this conference room. That's right. But, but we're doing it ironically. So, <laughs> If I can jump in with a quick aside, even though we're only 30 seconds into this discussion. Please. We were talking about uh, flavorings that Trader Joe's sells. They sell 
everything bagel topping in a container that you can put on different items. Excellent. You just sprinkle everything bagel toppings on. Is that something that New Yorkers like? Is that something that everyone likes? Oh, I'm just Ooh. trying to get you to... He done answered question. your question with a question! <laughs> <laughs> Set Spike! So, um, so, okay, so we have here at the table two items pumpkin flavored. Um, pumpkin spice cheesecake sandwich creams and pumpkin pie popcorn. Did you pass me? Um, and Patrick's getting it on it. Taste I, test from Matt. I, I, I hope everybody has, has gotten a chance to taste this and tell me if it's popcorn or not. It's really uh, strong smelling. Pardon the crinkle by the microphone. Um, but tis the season to pay 30% more for something because it has pumpkin in it. So I just taste tested the pumpkin pie popcorn. Mm. I'm very upset that it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You win again, pumpkin. <laughs> So, um, why are we talking about pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkin pie, everything? Mm. Because I have for years had this concern about truth and advertising when things that say they're pumpkin, whatever, there's no pumpkin in it. And there really was the Starbucks, you know, the Starbucks started this whole thing. And from 2002 to 2014, they were using fake caramel flavoring uh, that has actually been shown to be very bad for your health. Uh, nothing really, the cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, cloves, actual pumpkin in there. So they were for, for 12, 13 years, um, not putting anything really pumpkin in there. And I, looking back on it now, I'm offended even more so, um, even though maybe I don't have a case against them on their truth in advertising, um, but, but I know it's still out there. And so I wanted to talk about this. Uh, you guys feel like the Wolzman pulled over your Pull your eyes on this? Or? Well, no, I, I've seen, uh, I like, uh, my, my favorite lowbrow solution to this, there was like a, a a super cheap chicken wing company that wanted to sell really crappy, like chicken wings that you could heat up in your oven, but they weren't chicken wings. They were vague chicken-esque products in the vague shape of chicken wings, so their solution, was it to improve the product? No. Was it to get actual chicken wings? Heavens no. It was to change the spelling of wings to wang. <laughs> chicken wangs. Uh, who wants to buy chicken wangs? With with so so you can't see this at home, but it was spelled with W Y N G S. Chicken wangs. Oh, I was envisioning a different spelling. Yeah. Well, no, ch chicken wangs. Chicken wangs. You can, you can get at any black market farm here in the state, and that's a whole different thing. Patrick, you could probably. Yeah, talk I was some envisioning. I was envisioning a different product entirely. Chicken wangs. So I, I did some searching on the Federal Trade Commission's website to try to understand what is the actual truth in advertising uh, complaint uh, case. Uh, I don't think the FTC has a lot of. Uh, teeth to go after people or corporations that are um, lying to consumers. I think that they're usually kind of a watchdog that puts out a public release and tries to negotiate with them. I think they really try to push class action lawsuits. Um, but I, I see here that there was a case from a couple years ago, a class action lawsuit um, against the, let me get the name of the Coffee, correct. Molita or Molita coffee that had uh, that a maple 
they had a creme brulee, they had a pumpkin spice, and it was settled out of court, so there's not a there's not a decision based off of it. But the, the complaint read that they had no components of the underlying um, flavor that they were talking about. So so they said, you know, this is pumpkin spice, there was no cinnamon, there's no cloves, there's no allspice, there's no pumpkin in it. Um, and that under the FTC guidelines, if you do that, you can you can say that we can say that something's pumpkin spice, but only if at a twelve point font or something similar to a readable font from a reasonable distance, you say that it is artificially flavored. That you say that it's not all natural. That they had certain coffees that had that artificial flavoring uh, logo, other ones did not, and they sued them on the ones that did not, and that was that was uh, what they got them on. I looked up some, some words that have gotten people in trouble in advertisements like that, and words that have not. Basically, if you can't use too strong a words, the, 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 the FTC says not too strong, so it's like an example. You cannot say, don't say complete your product is, it's not the complete support for your needs, it's an extensive support for your needs. You can't say it's a crucial component, you can say it's an important component. But this is great for lawyers that want to get into marketing careers, right? Right, it's, I mean, and it just goes like basically anytime you give something that could, that could be disproven, like say you can't say eliminate, you can say reduce. Because then, as long as it's reduced by any amount, you are telling the truth. Right. The, um, the world of supplements <clears throat> is kind of a big area, it seems like. Um, $50 billion a year, a community of people that are using the code words that don't get them in trouble, that aren't saying anything, but the consumers don't read it as that. Well, this reminds me, did you guys ever see that case a couple years back with cold easers? You remember that? There was this thing, and my, my mom was obsessed with these for years. The cold easers, these little lozenges you take, and it was, she loved it because she was a school teacher, and it was invented by a school teacher, so it had to be good, right? <laughs> and so you're supposed to take it when you traveled, and it was supposed to boost your immune, immune system. Right. And there was a lawsuit, and it eventually came out that cold easers could still exist, but scientifically, it literally did nothing for you. It was a placebo in every sense, and it did none of the claims that it that it made, and so you can still produce it, you just can't say it does anything. <laughs> so now it's effectively candy? Now it's candy, but it's invented by teachers, so you know it's good. <laughs> so are you telling me that uni unicorn frappuccinos do not actually have any unicorns in them? Is that what you're, is that no what you're getting No comments on unicorn frappuccinos. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this though, I had the pumpkin pie caramelicious from Scooters, amazingly good. I had the pumpkin pie blizzard from Dairy Queen, amazingly bad. I'm pretty sure the blizzard did not have any pumpkin pie in it. I'm pretty sure the scooters had lots of pumpkin pie in it. Now, we disagree with Dave. Warren Buffett is a friend of the podcast, and so we support Dairy Queen in all of its flavors and forms. Dave is not speaking for us. Um, I, this morning, uh, again, I'm a sucker. I had my um, English muffin this morning. It was the pumpkin pie flavor. 
Is there any way around this? Are we ever going to get past? Are we at peak peak pumpkin spice Dude, in this know, country? They, are we still we have more mountains to climb? With this you country? had to buy those those muffins, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they you, were the freshest ones I could find. Did they just show up at your door? <laughs> Here you go, Dave. <laughs> are there are there any signs that this wave is slowing down? Cresting, well, I, I think we're, we're going to reach the singularity. So the two kind of cresting waves, as I see them, are pumpkin spice and bacon, right? Right. So eventually, when something is pumpkin and bacon flavored, we can shut down society. <laughs> Civilization's done, and you know. Well, we did that with the maple bacon donut, right? We we tried to get there. We maple the wasn't pumpkin. pumpkin. Pumpkin making maple. Oh, maple maple maple. Bacon maple. Pumpkin bacon maple. I gotta make a phone call. <laughs> I've never had a pumpkin spice latte. I just I, what? I yeah. never have had a pumpkin. Spice I like latte pumpkin pie, either. and that's about the extent of my pumpkin flavored. We have two pumpkin spice latte versions at the table, so this is interesting because I believe that pumpkin spice lattes were best when they were fake, and now that they're real, unfortunately, I don't think it tastes as good. And when I'm talking about Starbucks. Do we have any takes from anybody else at the table? I like pumpkin beer a lot. Pumpkin beer is great. I agree. Pumpkin beer is amazing. Rock Bottom does a great pumpkin beer, everyone. Patrick, you have the best hot takes over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, I like pumpkin beer. That's all. <laughs> is anyone against pumpkin stuff? Against pumpkin flavoring? Does anyone, does it just like Scraping the inside of a pumpkin make you throw up in your mouth. No. Well, no, it's, I, I actually, I'm, I'm more similar to Jordan. I, I enjoy the pumpkin pie. I mean, again, it's, as much as the pumpkin spice has permeated all facets of society, it is still possible to avoid the pumpkin spice. <laughs> you can't opt out. Oh my gosh, full circle, guys. Full <laughs> circle. We did it. And on that note, I believe. We have ourselves another podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Mom, for liking this on Facebook. Uh, with that, we are out. Bye.